you have your Bible today, I'd ask you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. It's over toward the end of the New Testament for Jude and Revelation. If you look over there, 1 John 5 verses 1 through 4. The title of my message today is The Assurance of Our Salvation. You know, in a day when a lot of folks are threatening to blow us up, we need this. Um, Let's look at God's word. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a child of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know that we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and really, that isn't difficult. For every child of God defeats this evil world by trusting Christ to give the victory. And the ones who win this battle against the world are the ones who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. One basic thing that every Christian person ought to know without any shadow of a doubt is whether or not they are really a Christian. That ought to be a definite thing in our hearts and minds. Now what does it mean today to be saved. It means that every sin is forgiven. Secondly, it means that Jesus through the Holy Spirit comes into our heart and abides with us forever and ever. He comes to give us the peace and the power and the purpose that we want and need. Third, it means that when we die or when Jesus returns again, we're going home to heaven to be with him for an eternity. Every Christian needs the absolute assurance that he or she has this experience of salvation. We should not be saying, I hope I'm saved, or I think I'm saved. We need to be able to say, praise God, I know that I'm saved. That's the way it ought to be. The truth of the matter is, if you have a genuine salvation. You should know it. If it's real, thank God because you can never lose it. When we're talking about the assurance of salvation, we're talking about something of vital importance. We're not talking about the color of the church carpet. We're not talking about how high the steeple is over on such and such a church. We're not talking about some denominational uh, preference, we're talking about the eternal destiny of the human soul. We're talking about your ever-living, never-dying soul. We ought to have absolute certainty about some things. To be victorious in your Christian life, you need to be able to say, I know that I'm saved. But, it is, but is it possible to be saved and have doubts about it? So many people over the years have come to me and said, Pastor, I, I know I'm saved, but every once in a while these, these little doubts, they kind of creep in. They kind of come in sideways. They uh, take uh, over when I'm going through a tough time. If it is not possible for the child of God to sometimes be beleaguered, with doubts, then why did the Apostle John write these words? These things I have written to you 
who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, know, that's emphatic, that you have eternal life. Evidently, some of the folks that he was writing to were having serious questions and doubts about their salvation. Doubt doesn't necessarily mean that you haven't been saved. As a matter of fact, we only tend to doubt those things that we really believe. Doubt is to your spirit what pain is to your body. Pain doesn't mean that one is dead. Pain means that there is life, but that something is wrong. A part of the body is not functioning as it ought to. So doubt is possible, but not profitable. Yet we must admit that Christians can have doubts and still be saved. Doubts are not good in salvation, nor are arguments good in marriages, nor are pain, uh, nor is pain good in our bodies. But these are the facts of life, and we have to deal with them along the way. I remember you, but I remind you that if you are trying to live the Christian life with doubts, it's much like driving an automobile with the brakes on. You need to have not a hope so, think so, maybe so, uh, but we need to have a I know so salvation. The little epistle of 1 John, uh, John uses the word know are known 38 times. So many people have sort of designated this book in the Bible as the book of assurance. Assurance begins with the new birth. John's gospel gives us a clear teaching about this birth. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, the man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? Jesus answered, Verily I say unto you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. For that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. In this passage, Jesus is talking to a religious man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus wanted to know about the miracles. In essence, Jesus told him, in order for you to understand miracles, there has to first of all be a miracle inside your heart, your heart. He needed to be born again. He asked Jesus about this. In his answer to Nicodemus, Jesus points out some things about the new birth that we need to understand for full assurance. In a birth, a conception takes place. In verse 5, Jesus said that we are born of the water and of the Spirit in order to enter into the kingdom of God. When the Spirit of God and the Word of God come together in the womb of faith, 
there is a wonderful conception. It will not happen without your consent. We must provide the womb of faith. In a birth, a continuation is involved. Verse 6 says that physical life is imparted by physical life. And spiritual life is imparted by spiritual life. Parents do not manufacture babies in the true sense of the word. They pass on the life that has been given to them. Life is transmitted. In the flesh, we receive the nature of our fleshly parents. When the Spirit of God and the Word of God create in us something supernatural, we receive the character of a new being with a divine nature. Christians are not just nice people. They are new creatures. We are not like a tadpole that grows up to be a frog. We are more like a frog who has become a prince by the kiss of grace. A birth is a once-for-all experience in the natural realm and also in the spiritual realm. When a baby is born in earthly society, a record is written down. You get a birth certificate. In heaven... When someone is born again, that name is written down in glory. This speaks of a completed fact. It is important that we understand this because no one can ever be unborn. Even when one's body ceases to exist, the spirit of an individual goes on timeless, dateless, measureless throughout all eternity. A birth is a starting place. A little child is all tomorrow's. No policeman will be there ready to arrest a newborn baby for crimes that they had done in the past because there isn't any past. When we come to Jesus, we are not yesterdays. We are all tomorrow's. When the baby is born, it has all of the equipment that it will ever have. What a blessing to discover, to develop, and to deploy that which we have received in the new birth. Let's talk about our part in the new birth. We had no choice about our first birth. That was decided by our parents. But we have one about our second birth. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, 1 John 5, 1 says, The new birth takes place when we believe on the Lord Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The passage is so great because here the scripture clearly delineates what saves us. And then, in contradistinction, so we can make no mistake about it at all, it speaks about what does not save us. Therefore, we can look at it, first of all, negatively, and see what doesn't save, and then positively to see what does save. This verse tells us 
that self and works do not save. Not of yourself, not of works. That seems very simple, doesn't it? It's not of self, not of works. But most people simply don't get it. They don't understand that. If you went up to the average man on the street and said, are you going to go to heaven? They would say, sure. I mean, 99 out of 100 would say, sure. And then you say, why? Why would you be going to heaven? The majority of them would answer and say, well, I'm doing the best I can. Well, think about that answer for just a minute. I'm doing the best I can. I, that's self, am doing, that's works. I'm doing the best I can. Many think that God is like Santa Claus. He's making a list, checking it twice, trying to find out who's naughty and nice. Then they think one day at the judgment, we're going to all stand before God, and he's going to weigh all the good in our life, against all the evil in our life and see where the balance uh, uh, comes, comes down. Most people believe that they can behave themselves into heaven. But look at our scripture again clearly. Not of yourselves and not of works. We're not going to go to heaven in a rowboat. I guess everybody knows that. I've heard this illustration used numerous times in my life. Uh, Those people that believe in works and grace. If you're rowing across a stream in a boat and you're just pulling on one oar, guess what happens? You go round and round in a circle. Let's call that one works. And if you just pull on the other oar, let's call that one faith, you once again just go round and round in a circle in the opposite direction. But then with a wise look on their face, those folks would say, if you put both oars in, faith and works, you'll get right across the stream. Now that might sound like a good illustration, but it has a fatal flaw. We're not going to heaven in a rowboat. That isn't the way that works. We're not going to heaven that way at all. We're going to heaven by grace, by the grace of God. It's not of self, and it's not of works. If you don't understand that, you will never have the assurance of your salvation. If any of it depends on your works, then you've got to face this. Well, how much... Uh, work do I have to have? Do I have to do 14 nice things every day? Do I have to do 27 nice things every day? Do my nice things have to add up to 100 a week? You know, you never know. You never know how much worth work it takes uh, for your salvation. That's the wrong way to go at it. We need to get this into our heart and into our head. It is not of self and it is not of works. Look at uh, Ephesians 2.8 again carefully. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
On the positive side, it is grace through faith. Our faith is very, very important. If you don't have faith, you're lost. Without it, you are lost. Grace is something that we do not deserve at all. It is God's unmerited love and God's unmerited favor shown to sinners who deserve judgment. What is faith? I turn my back on sin and I trust in Jesus. I put my faith where God has put my sins on the Lord Jesus Christ. The faith is not a mere intellectual belief. No, it's more than that. It's a commitment. Now, I can believe that an airplane can fly, but if I don't want to get on it, then I don't trust it. Here's how salvation works, and the new birth comes about. I put my faith in God's grace. If you do that, You're going on home. Think of faith as your sin-stained hand, reaching up, saying, God, I need you. God, I want you. And when you put your hand of faith in God's hand of grace, that is salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. There are some birthmarks of the believer. John, in the epistle of 1 John, gives some traits of the folks that are twice born. We might call these the birthmarks of the believer. If we're born again, the evidence will be there. It'll be there. I want to take three of these evidences that John mentions in this small epistle, and talk with you about them. You may, if you want, test your salvation by them. Number one is the commandment test. Now, by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whosoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. That's 1 John 2, 3 through 6. John does not beat around the bush here at all. He goes right to it. He says, in effect, look, don't tell me you're saved if you're not trying to keep God's commandments. It's just that simple. If you say you are, then you're a liar. Let me be clear. You are not saved because you keep the commandments, but you will keep the commandments if you are saved. Now, that brings up a serious problem because there is is not a one of us who would dare say that we have been saved And since we've been saved, we have kept every commandment to perfection. I hope none of you would say that. The understanding of all this is the word keep. 
It was used in ancient times by sailors. Those early sailors did not have global positioning satellites. They didn't have any radio signals to guide them. They sailed over the trackless sea. They, in doing that, sailed by the stars. They kept their eye always on the heavens. And they call that keeping the stars. Keeping the stars is much like keeping the commandments. Any sailor could occasionally get blown off course, get distracted, waver in his way. Yet he is still trying, basically, to keep the stars. When we keep the commandments, we steer by them. That doesn't speak of sinless perfection because no one is sinless perfectly except Jesus. But it does mean that our heart's desire is to keep the word of God. From the moment I gave my heart to Jesus, uh, there has been a desire in me to keep God's word. And I know it's like that for every one of you that are here today. Well, birthmark number two is the companion test. 1 John 3.14 says, We know we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. We don't uh, need a bumper sticker or a lapel pin to prove that we are Christians. We don't need that. Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love is the nature of God, and therefore it is the characteristic of of his children. If we love him and his love is in us, then we are going to love that which he loves, which is his dear, dear family. This is the reason that it's foolish to say yes to Jesus, but no to his church. The church is the bride of Christ. Who could say yes? to the groom, and no to the bride. That doesn't make any sense. So one of the marks, the traits of the twice-born, is that we love one another, the members of the body of Christ, the members of the church. A church is comprised of people who have finally realized that they are sinners and banded themselves together to do something about that. It's the only organization I know of, besides Hell's Angels, that you have to profess to be bad before you can join. We have to say, if we're going to be a Christian, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I want to confess my sins. And I am turning my life over to Jesus Christ. Number three, birthmark number three, is the confidence test. Biblical belief, confidence, is not just an intellectual exercise. You don't believe about Jesus. You believe in Jesus. Notice this verse is in the present tense. 
It doesn't say he who has believed. It says he who believes. Our confidence is always in the present tense. This morning, as we've talked about all this, have you kind of been calculating all of that in your mind and heart? There's anybody in the house today that would say, you know, I don't have the slightest idea if I'm saved. Some days I might think that I am, but most of the time I just don't know. Well, let me tell you, this is what you need to do. You need to say, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I want to place my faith and my trust in you, and I want to be with you forever and then go on home to be with you in heaven. And then there's no doubt, there's no question, uh, there's no pondering. You know that you're a part of the family of God. Maybe there's some folks here today that have been visiting with us for a period of time. We'd love to have you come and join with us, be a part of our family. One of the things that we try to do here at Trinity is to love one another. I don't know if you visitors noticed it or not, but this is the friendliest church in the world. You know, as you were sitting there, folks came by and welcomed you and greeted you, and and that's the way this church is. And we want you to come and be a part of it with us. We pray and hope that you'll take a stand for Christ, that you'll become a part of the family of God. I'm going to stand down here at the front. We're going to sing a hymn. If the Lord leads you, you just slip out, slip forward. Come and take a stand for Jesus. Let's stand together as we sing.